Welcome to Any Honey and the Newt. Welcome to season three of Any Honey and the Newt. So we're glad to have you as we go into a new season and a new set of topics and themes. But before we get into that, just want to say welcome back and thank you for subscribing if you have, uh, putting comments. We want to engage in conversation. So keep uh, keep us going by engaging us in these topics that we're we're discussing. So Anthony, this season, we want to talk about a lot of different things related to thinking, learning, experience, subjectivity. Uh, but of course, this is a basketball-themed podcast, so let's get into it. What's wrong with the officials this year? <laughs> what, what isn't wrong with them? <laughs> I actually always wonder how what their training is like because um, sometimes, I mean, every I think every basketball fan who watches games is just like, I could do a better job than these guys. Uh, but I remember playing intramural basketball at UNM. And having that same mentality, like, okay, these refs are going to be like NBA quality refs. And they were like at least 20 times worse. I know that number is very subjective, but I'm, I'm going with an official 20 times worse number here. <laughs> it was just like some mind boggling calls. And of course we move like way slower than NBA athletes. So you would think that their uh, perception of the game kind of name dropping our episode today uh, would be able to like pick up on things at a normal pace because we're not like you could see it happen on TV and you know what the calls are, which go in which way, but like um, they're still making like maybe the same magnitude of boneheaded calls, but because everything is like less amplified than it is on the NBA stage, it's like way worse. Um, mm-hmm. But um, I've, I forget which game I was watching recently. It was probably some Knicks game uh, because of course that's all I watch <laughs> where um, and Corbin, tell me if you have an, uh, a game that you caught recently in mind, but, you know, watching the NBA's, um, you know, replay analysis where they have to like, you know, they go over to the side table, they go review the footage from like the NBA replay center from the game. And, um, uh, they have to make a call based on either a challenge from the coach or, you know, it's, I think there's rules, right. Where within the last couple of minutes, it's like they, they decide to review the play. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so like, you know, they go over and they can still, what's mind boggling to me is they can still get the call wrong, even when watching instant replay. Now I'll avoid uh, for this, for the purposes of this discussion of, um, you know, whether, like you said, whether they can review the play or not. Uh, they are, there's also language that they use on the call for all of the, you know, the whole fives of listeners that we have. Um, where, like, they use the language, uh, the play is confirmed if what, the, what they see in evidence matches what the original call is. The, they'll use the term, the play stands if they don't see video evidence of their original call. So they're not, basically that language allows them to say like, uh, we're not able to determine if 
our call was right or wrong, but because that was the call made, it has to stand. There's now there's no evidence to overturn it. And then the other language, of course, being uh, the call is overturned, um, which basically says that there was enough video evidence for them to be able to change their mind. And um, so that like level of detail, I think, is important. But sometimes these guys, they'll like see it and it looks fairly obvious to me. Um, and you could hear the announcers talking about it, but they still like whatever, it, whatever uh, level of of uh, perception and analysis that they go through cognitively while watching this. And I think there is some communication with somebody, um, but I don't know if that communication plays into it. But whatever happens in during that like little black box of instant replay, that it's it can still go wrong, which is just crazy. Yeah, it's fascinating. Uh, I know that we wanted to talk about officiating and, and lead into perception, but we're kind of already touching on things that we want to discuss at the end of the season, too. So uh, Gilles Deleuze talks about the objectivity of the camera, right? And that recording something by a machine takes away that subjective element of of interpretation, of trying to generate a, a physiological perspective and, and a historical perspective. It's just a piece of technology that captures what happened. And I never was convinced by, by that characterization of technology and of cameras. I mean, it's still pointing from an angle. It doesn't have to be just between frames. There can be obstructions between where the camera's located and the thing that you're trying to see. Uh, there's multiple cameras and you try to bring them together, but then you have to decide how to prioritize which view is going to be taken as authoritative. Uh, they're still interpreting what you see on the screen when you play the, the recording back. The recording itself isn't what's determinative of the call. It's the the watching and decision-making based on the replay. So I, I really hesitate to say that including technology somehow overcomes our subjectivity to provide an objective resolution to to our perception. And I think that's something that we want to talk about a lot this this season is perspective, subjectivity, and objectivity. Yeah, um, I think we said it in season one. I can't believe uh, somebody gave us the airtime to, to do three seasons of this. But uh, I think we had this conversation back in season one. And I was starting to be convinced that, um, you know, even what we would define as objective isn't objective. Um, but it wasn't until like I was really just like paying attention like to what the referees were doing, and I was starting to break down because we have been having these conversations around perspective uh, perception for a while, and I was like watching like they're watching video, we're watching video, and yet I can come up with a totally different conclusion than than the person who's paid to do this job of like analyze what's happening on screen, and so I was like if this process can happen where I can come up with different conclusions uh, based within a concrete rule set, then like it made me question like everything about science uh, data collection, really. <laughs> wow. And it does have far reaching implications. Of course, we just want them to get the call right to have a, f a fair game, right? <laughs> that's fair. That's the Who cares point? about fair? We want our team to win. <laughs> Tribalism, baby. <laughs> So so even uh, the purpose of the replay is going to be subjective. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. This this year, I've heard a lot of complaining from various commentators. Uh, I haven't gotten to watch a lot of games in real time. I, most of what I've seen has been highlights and and uh, segments of games just on YouTube and things like that. So, um, what I've been hearing is just there. There's not enough officials. They're having to pull up officials from G League and from uh, other sub organizations that the officials that they have had are overworked and are fighting with COVID and stuff themselves. Oh, that and makes sense. There, there's been a lot of like just complaining about missed calls, uh, egregious missed calls that are not overturned even upon replay. And so the question of, you know, who's, where does the decision come from and, and how does our uh, interpretive faculty in, uh, get involved in making the the fair decision, the official ruling, right? That's that's why we have officiating is so that they're supposed to not take sides and, and give a a somewhat objective decision on what happened so that it can be fair between the two teams. And uh, a lot of concern this year that maybe that's not that it's been worse than in the past. Yeah, I wonder if the standards have uh, have changed um, because I think in the past, and I could be misremembering here, my own perception is throwing things off, but um, I think it's been demonstrated that uh, referees typically favor the home team with calls, and I can't remember if there was any distinction with in general or if it's like in close situations, like down the stretch of the game or whatever. Um, and it'd be interesting to see how like a broader workforce, you know, more referees... Uh, would like tilt that does it affect whether they are you know if if that makes it worse or if it actually makes it a little bit more fair because now there's more viewpoints in the situation yeah that's interesting and i think um it's worth noting too like the objectivity of officiating is still a collective effort right there's an attempt to kind of come to agreement or to defer to the person who's closest and even that's that's a convention so so even in the structure of officiating there's um i don't want to say it's uh, subjective isn't the word i'm looking for there's partiality there's there's not a complete determination of of the facts on the ground because we're having to operate still from an observer's point of view one of the things that i just have a quick question about your uh uh, the partiality in this particular example, uh, could you define it as bias? Well, that's a good question. I, I, I'm kind of trying to introduce all the different topics that we're wanting to talk about this, this season and bias is one of them because is it the same thing to be biased as it is to have a perspective? And I think that maybe that's a little bit strong of a term. I I think when we talk about bias, uh, we really are, discussing or pointing out something negative it's I, I don't know that you can have a positive bias um you can have a positive perspective or a partial like a, a special perspective you know something that we would endorse as as um having an extra incentive or an extra point of view and an extra kind of authority but bias to me always seems like a negative so i i do want to separate that out the other thing i just wanted to point out was the norms involved in what are we looking for? What are we trying to achieve? Uh, what is officiating for? 
those the idea of normativity is going to be a big a big key in our discussions this season as well. Finally, <laughs> we always we're always uh, dancing around the issue here, but we're finally going to start talking about normativity. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I guess you should be the one who's more excited than me. <laughs> yeah, I don't think we can avoid it, and it's about time. <laughs> I'll no, say it for I, you. Uh, it's about damn time. <laughs> It's definitely a soapbox that I have. So uh, for those that have heard it in in other conversations, welcome back. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to finally see uh, Norm raged Corbin. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. So do you want to say anything else about the challenges of officiating and, and maybe some of the questions that might be generated out of trying to examine officiating or, or should we jump into our, our first subtopic of the season? Yeah, I think um, we can jump in. I'll just say that um, in thinking about officiating and I kind of was starting to get to this earlier in my very long monologue is that um, you start to like, you get, you start to see all the topics that we're starting to build up towards this season within that little, like, that little box that happens when somebody's making a call. We talk about it a lot when players are on the floor, whether they can make decisions or not. But like uh, with officiating, right, there's a finite rule set. So it's like a contained system and um, they're making decisions within that rule set. And there's, you know, all of the stuff that we're talking about. So um, I think that it's like a really good example of, of all like the, the cognitive stuff that we go through from like, uh, processing, you know, from first like input to processing to um, to decision making to output, and all the stuff in between. And hopefully, my big uh, goal slash purpose is to the, finally understand um, like how we learn, and to take that to the next level. Uh, the question that boggles my mind on a nightly basis is: uh, Do machines learn the way we do? And will there ever be AI? So that might be next season, but I'm here for the for the ride. Yeah, yeah, excellent. There's certainly a lot of directions that this conversation w- will go in, and uh, could go even even more. Uh, I'm glad that you broke it down into the input output model. That's actually where I want to kind of start with today's topic of perception. So when we talk about perception, I think there's a general kind of short story of how there's something that happens out there in the world. It comes in through whatever faculties, you know, for our vision, it comes through our eyes to our brains, uh, generates some kind of conception or thought of, of what's going on, and then we react to it. Uh, and other kind of stimuli response systems, you know, odors come in through our nose and, and we smell them. Uh, maybe our tongue, you can count with the, the olfactory senses. Uh, touch, you know, we we make tactile contact with surfaces and, and feel different textures and, and uh, resistance. So our senses are often kind of just pictured in an input-output kind of system. So something happens, it comes in, and something comes out of us as a reaction or a response to that stimuli, stimulus. Uh, I just briefly want to discuss about whether that's in a thorough enough picture by looking at other kinds of input output systems that we might not call perception or or maybe we 
we should, and it, it might like change how we think about perception in general and about what we think of us as organisms. But the example I, I always liked was John Searle's um, discussion of digestion. Like food comes in through the esophagus, gets into our intestines, is processed, and then turns into waste. Is our stomach perceiving the food? I was just about to ask. Is, I was like, holy smokes, is our stomach perceiving the food? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think the, the short answer is no, right? Because, uh, but this is where like, nuance plays a, a hand, right? Like our stomach is made of stomach acid and there are chemical triggers that cause our stomach to start the, the digestion process, right? It's not just our stomach. It goes through our intestines. And um, <clears throat> so it kind of kicks off that whole cascade of stuff. And so like the, the I guess the simple answer is, is you could probably argue that it doesn't, but I always fall down this rabbit hole of like the longer I think about it and the more detail I put into it, I'm like, Oh, maybe it does. <laughs> so, so what, what, did, that, what did Mr. Searle say? Yeah. I think the intuitive answer is supposed to be no, although it's, it's fascinating for those people that would say yes, because uh, we could talk more about what does it mean to be, to perceive and what's going on there. Um, and for those people that would say, no, it's not perceiving. And, oh, by the way, our eyes are doing the exact same thing. They're getting input. It's just purely chemical or neurological triggers, and it generates an output. So there's really no difference between stomach digestion and visual um, processing. That says something about what we think perception and thinking is, right? But if you think there's a difference between a stomach digesting food and our eyes and brain processing light to generate visual uh, conceptions of what we're, what we're seeing, then uh, then there's something to explore there as far as what what is the difference? What makes a brain different from a stomach in these in these instances? Yeah, that's a great um, a great question. You you brought up the eyes thing, and um, I just can't help but think like. Uh, you, th I think you were just kind of being a little cavalier here, and I don't think this was intentional, but you threw the word perception and thinking together. And uh, I've always kind of thought of them separately, but there is this like really fine line as to like what differentiates those two things, right? If you're saying that eyes and stomach don't think, then perception is very clearly separate from thinking, right? But like, if you say that, uh, like at least in the eyes case, right? Like our rods and cones pick up colors and signals and send a signal to our brain. And that causes things to happen in our brain, which we all know is where our thinking happens. Um, then it becomes really hard to desegregate perception from thinking because how do you what at what point do you say like okay this signal is not thinking but this signal is thinking when it's all just neurons firing electricity at that point? I, I'm so glad that you touched on several very important things there. I will say I think our plan is to talk about philosophy of mind, what is a mind, and what is it to think later um maybe even mind might be in a separate season when we talk about artificial intelligence but the idea of separating perceiving from thinking the processes of perceiving and thinking uh is a very important one that i think we need to discuss today and throughout this season so 
It is not uncommon. What you were suggesting is that perceiving is maybe a more mechanical exercise of inputs to outputs. And then what we do is we we think with the outputs of that perceptual process. That's not an uncommon uh, idea in the history of philosophy and, and in the considerations of perception. Um, just a kind of a side note, because I want to be real careful here. Uh, in In a lot of the history of thought, philosophy often ventured into questions that it was poorly equipped to answer. Uh, it would start with speculation, generate hypotheses, and then what do you know a science generates out of that? So some of the sciences that we might find to be more authoritative on on things like perception and physiology today were handled in a very loose way in the history of philosophy. So uh, I just kind of want to say there's a lot of discussion about this in both science and philosophy. And some of the philosophical, um, we're the heirs of some philosophers who tried to figure out before they had the tools to actually study the physiology. That being said, a very common theme or topic in the 18th, 17th century about thinking was this representational model where our bodies generate, uh, receive stimuli inputs and generate a representation in our brain in our head or in our mind however you want to talk about it that we that's what we interact with we don't interact with the outside world we being the the ego the subject um whatever it is that i call the self i'm only interacting with representations of the world not the world itself so that was a very common story about perception that perception was not yet quite thinking it was generating the the its outputs were the inputs for the thinking process so that distinction that you made is is a common one historically. Yeah, and I'll I'll just add that I'll I'll do my best this season to to bring in um, <clears throat> the you know a lot of this is based on like neuroscience and psychology and social science uh, sociology. So I'll do my best to bring in the research from those fields because, like you said, the early philosophers they were like, oh, I wonder what this is, and then. They had no one or, you know, per, uh, subject to be able to test a hypothesis on because unless they did it like very unethically and just like chop someone's brain Which open. Happened. Which, which <laughs> happened, yeah. <laughs> Humanity is disgusting, even still. Um, but, you know, uh, we have much better methods and we have thousands of years of history. And it's not just uh, based on, you know, what and I, I know this isn't what you meant by traditional philosophy, but like going back, you know, four or 5,000 years when these thinkers, uh, when the first thinkers were thinking about this stuff, trying to make sense of their world. Um, so we have like all of that history that we can lean on in terms of the research, both on the philosophical side and the, uh, the, the science that was spawned by those philosophical thoughts. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I do hope that we can get more specifics with your your knowledge and, and awareness of those things. I will just say that um, going through that history, this early concept that that perception generated representations and that thought dealt with representations was kind of part and parcel of this dualism, this idea that there's the physical world and the mental world, and the mental world is separate from the physical world. And uh, there was pushback to that as, as science became more sophisticated and did start doing its its uh, investigations. It started having a hard time drawing the line, like where does the physical stop and the mental start? 
And so some of the, uh, I don't want to say early, but some of the scientific developments responding to the representationalists was kind of reactionary and said, well, actually, it's all just physical. It's all just uh, material processing. And this is where some of the strong determinist kind of pictures develop, where we think of the world as a complete set of mechanized events, and everything is just cause and effect, and um, thought gets reduced to that cause and effect uh, process and, and universe. I don't know. Tyler Bird. Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, I don't know if I, I would think of everything in terms of cause and effect, um, but I definitely, I'll just lay this out there. I definitely think that our own sense of thinking, like human level thinking, is just more complicated versions of, of baser um, processing systems. Like, I don't think that there's much difference between uh, human thought and other processing environments. Because uh, I was going to think, I was going to talk about like uh, how single cell organisms. Uh, interpret stimuli, but that's kind of basic. And then even computers, right? We're starting to see that computers are starting to become capable of almost human thought-like system. So just kind of wanted to lay that out there before you take us on our next steps in this journey. No, that's perfect. That is the next step on the journey. Um, I was actually going to bring up Tyler Burge, who, uh, you know, I'm going to try and not rely solely on him, but he's a huge part of, uh, or his works have hugely influenced my thoughts on this. But uh, Tyler Burge wants to to investigate both stories, the mechanized uh, world and the representational world. And what he points to is the phylogenetic differences between things like amoeba and hydra, which both have to navigate their environment and react to stimuli in their environment, uh, to things like frogs and spiders and uh, mammals, you know, um, getting up to humans eventually. And kind of showing that some of the traits that we tend to think of as human intelligence are observed much earlier in the phylogenetic scale. And things that might we might want to use the metaphors of thought or, or mental activity can be explained away in mechanical events. So like the hydra, the way that it, its body pushes off surfaces and reacts in its environment trying to scoop up food seems relatively mechanical and it's kind of luck whether it encounters food or not i mean there is some reaction to how food presence in its environment changes the environment in a way that affects the the hydra's movement so there is a reaction to the stimuli but again it's a it's kind of mechanical in the sense that and, and i'm using mechanical very loosely it's chemical it's it's a lot of different processes but this idea of pure inputs generating consistent uh, descriptive outputs. There's there's no decision making involved in the hydra's movement. It's just reacting to what's happening around it. Uh, versus something like spiders. Uh, the example that Burge likes to talk about is the jumping spider, who uh, can can have some kind of perceptual depth perception of its environment and figure out what's prey and predator and jump towards or away or around a target. And uh, the question is, is that purely a, a mechanical process? Or is there something that the spider is doing to make differentiations in its environment that it can be right or wrong about? And this is where normativity enters in, right? And if it's it, purely mechanical, it's just going to do what it does. But if it's 
taking in inputs that are underdetermining about what is in the environment, then it has to make a, a decision whether this fits under category A or category B, at which point it's applying some kind of norms, uh, which we might call representation or thinking. And uh, anybody who's actually interacted with, well, I'll say any spider, first of all, but a jumping spider specifically, they know that those things can smell your fear and they make decisions <laughs> to consciously attack you um, because they know that one, you're, they're not a threat to you. And two, they also know that you're going to run away screaming. Um, I've been in that situation many a times where I'm like, trying to chase it down and like scuttle it near the, the door to get it out safely. And it's like, Oh, this son of a bitch is right over me. I'm going to pop up in his face. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so that's kind of introduces this idea of normativity at a very early level. This isn't the kind of normativity about like social norms or ethics or anything like that. It's just a right, wrong kind of, or accurate, inaccurate uh, kind of norm for perception. And this is what Burge uses to differentiate like legitimate perception from other kinds of processes. So he would not say that a hydra moving towards food in its environment is perceiving the food, but maybe a spider is perceiving its prey Do you because it a... could be right or wrong about that representation. Yeah. Do you have a concrete example of, of like a really simple normative... Uh, like decision-making tree or system? Um, well, this might not be exactly what you're talking about, but another example from Burge that I like is the idea of a frog capturing flies in its environment. Um, so it perceives the fly enters its the range of its tongue and it snaps out and grabs it. Well, then you take an, uh, a smartphone that has an app that generates fly effects on the screen and the frog can be wrong about there being a fly. It stimulates the the fly. Um, it, it has the sounds and the color of a fly, and it moves in the similar kind of thing. But obviously, it's two dimensional instead of three dimensional. It it doesn't uh, move up into the environment. It's not like generating the same kind of motion that a, that a fly is. And the frog still can act as if it's a fly, and it will try to eat the fly on the screen. So there's a case in which the input is very different to the frog's sensory system, but it is converting or it is perceiving, it is um, judging that the fly is, or that the fly image on the phone is an actual fly and is thus something that could be eaten. Now, how much of that is? conceptualized like do they have the concept of fly not fly or do they just have food not food or like how how thorough that conceptualization is is up for debate and we can even take it down very minimally it could just be like this is something i stick my tongue out at and this is something i don't stick my tongue out at and and just in that differentiation the frog then reacts to stimuli in its environment by determining which category things fall into and if it can be right about that and accurately capture food or have, uh, so so here's, sorry, let me break it down a different way. If the same input can have different reactions, or if two different inputs can have the same reaction, and we can characterize those as accurate and inaccurate, that's where normativity comes in. The normativity indicates that there's some sort of processing happening, right? Like a simple stimuli input response mechanism 
probably like you could argue that there's not right like a blade of glass grass blows in the wind there's like stimuli in the sense that it's wind but it's more of a physical pushing motion so there's a response you can observe a response from the grass blade blowing in the wind and this only pops up because i'm like literally sitting in front of my grass (laughs) (laughs) um or a wind chime right which is even even more uh less alive than grasses um yeah but uh, so there's like that extra level of the frog, and I was I kept thinking of this uh, this thing happening. You can observe animal behavior, and not just where they incorrectly perceive something, but um, like you know the fly versus the fly on the phone. But they can also make poor judgments based on those perceptions, right? Maybe the fly is just slightly out of reach, or um, the frog thinks that it has to jump. And it does so, and then it completely misses the mark, right? These, if these things were just perfect cognizant machines, they wouldn't ever make mistakes like that. Uh, and in this case, like, there's lots of little nuances to the processing of the frog, or, you know, all animals, really, that allow um, for you to question whether or not it's just basic input-output, but more along the lines of, you know, there is normative decision-making happening here in this system. Like what you've said, I I do want to offer, just because I'm going to be pretty strongly biased throughout our conversations, and I think that normativity is essential to thought, um, I I do want to just sound for those people that would oppose that kind of thought that something like malfunctioning and misfires can happen in, in purely mechanical processes too, right? Like my stomach may not digest the food properly, um, maybe excretes not enough or too many acids or, you know, gets overstimulated, whatever that is, where it doesn't work properly according to the way that it would normally work. Um, that is not the same thing as having accurate or inaccurate, like satisfying or failing to satisfy a norm. So um, I just I just kind of want to leave space for, there are people that would push back and say, well, maybe these are just complex functions that we want to attribute thinking to because we don't understand how they work. But if we understood all the, the details, then what we would call satisfying or failing to satisfy a norm is really just firing and misfiring. So like my earlier statement of that, like human thinking, human thinking is not um, like its own special level of, of thinking, right? Is that it's, basically higher order versions of all of this stuff that we're talking about, but that it is uh, something other than just a strictly mechanical process. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's, that's very important to point out. I also want to say one of the reasons I struggle with the whole determinism topic from season one is because there's some element of truth to this idea of, Things are really complex, and the more we know about them and the more that we think we can explain them, the less, the less variability and normativity seem to enter in. So, so there, is, there are um, motivations to push back against the story that I want to tell this, this season. But I think if we're going forward with the idea that perception engages some kind of additional level where we generate... A representation of what's what's in the world instead of just having direct access to that world uh, and and it doesn't have to be in the way that historically where it separates us from the world it can just be that we're engaging with the world with a degree of accuracy or inaccuracy 
and that there's not a, a full fit between the inputs and, and the outputs and the decisions made upon those. I think that's where we start entering into the level of, of intellectual activity. Where you draw the line on thinking is going to be a terminological thing for me. I, I want to call anything that engages normative processing uh, for decision-making, I, I want to call that thinking. And then we can draw the lines between perception, conception, uh, evaluation. Like there's different kinds of thinking processes. Right. Uh, but terminologically, I'm just going to call anything that involves this, this normative representation as thinking, which yeah. means I think that frogs think. Yeah, and um, <clears throat> it's not just to help us like determine whether these are mechanical or some other process, but there's you know clear benefits to having uh, the arise of normativity, right? Like, if if it wasn't for this, we wouldn't be able to differentiate uh, from two really good outcomes. We would probably just sit there and be like. I don't know. There's no, there's no path forward. We just constantly roadblock ourselves in or two really bad outcomes that one might help us move forward a little bit more than another. So there's, you know, lots of things to take into account when it comes to um, not just observing decision-making, but also, you know, understanding that there's, that there's other things that arise and because of how complex the world is. Man, you keep setting me up perfectly. I feel like we're playing t-ball because that's exactly the next <laughs> step I wanted to go to was once you start involving these normative aspects, we have to ask, what are these? where are these norms coming from? And it seems, and, and again, this might be an overcharacterization and oversimplification this early in the conversation, but it seems like we can say something like these kind of uh, organisms, beings have projects. The The frog needs to locate food to survive and it doesn't do it the way the hydra does by just randomly navigating its environment until it fortunately stumbles upon the proper food stimulus uh it seems to be able to go out and and look for food and take it on as a goal-oriented project and if you have something like goal-orientedness then i think that's where norms are coming in they're generated by we want to achieve x and process A does or does not does not achieve goal X, you know, and, and you can stack these. A might get us to B, and B, in conjunction with C, will get us to X, and, and so now we're trying to achieve three projects, right? We want to accomplish A, B, and C. Um, it, it, it can get quite complicated, and, and who knows if this is a thorough enough examination, but I, I think here we start talking about perception in the realm of decision-making and project having, uh, which makes it different from something like a stomach, which will just, as long as it's got enough blood and juice and, and stimulus and neurological kind of um, energy, it will just keep processing even if it's not in an organism that's alive. You're making me uh, really think about, you, you said earlier you uh, that <clears throat> that normativity um has to happen uh you know within this percep perspect uh perception space uh, but it's almost like and it's almost like normativity allows perception to happen 
I kept thinking about like, uh, you know, you, you talked about phylogenomics earlier, right? And it's like, if there was no normativity, why would there be the need for this like uh, survival competition that happens within evolution, right? Like new species are modified. And of course, that is a biological system, right? DNA, we talked a little bit about this in the first season. Uh, but at the same time, I just can't help but think that like, it's like some meta law of the universe that kind of forces uh, nature to behave in the way that we observe rather than it arising because of nature. Wow, this is a tough, you know, this gets into the chicken and egg kind of questions. Um, instead of trying to argue for how I came to this position, because I know that we've already spent a lot of time on this topic today, I just want to kind of summarize where I'm at right now, and and we can determine whether it needs to be adapted later on, or adjusted later on. But I want to say that I think normativity and thinking co-emerge. I don't think you can have uh, thinking without normativity, but I don't think like normativity is something out there that exists and then some organisms just happen to stumble upon it and, and engage it in some way. It's not, I don't think it like a, a separate metaphysical reality. I think uh, one of the ways to think about this is that in a fully determinate process, all the inputs, no matter how complex it is, all the inputs generate a single uh, output or a single set of outputs, and it's consistent every single time unless there's mechanical failure. Right. And... In some levels of very complex systems, especially when there's maybe multiple systems funneling into uh, some kind of a, a processing unit, like we might call a brain, there can be under and over determination. So these processes aren't, even though the stimuli might all be happening at the same time, the information may not be coming in at the same time. So at the point of trying to interpret or try to, I'm already heavy-handed heavy on this, but I'm going to say in interpreting the, the inputs from your, from your senses, you might get the sense of, you might get your vision before you get the smell or the sound. And then your brain has to put it all together. And there can be so much information that it heavily, it like all points to the same thing, but you're getting it at different times that, that your decision might start preempting getting the inputs that would cause that decision. Similarly, you might be underdetermined. You might not have enough information. And so now you're having to guess what is causing those stimuli in your environment. And uh, that's an underdetermined kind of deception, but you're still processing the inputs that you have. And now you have norms about, am I right or wrong in my, in my guess? So, so I think what differentiate where norms comes from is when the determination processes are no longer linear and, and it becomes, or at least sufficiently linear that, that they all resolve at the same time. You have under and over, over determination where uh, your mind or, or the intelligence is trying to determine its environment and its stimuli prior to the determination being resolved. Uh, in your examples of the over and under determined situations, um, I can't help but think of of how like we already are in these situations where our brain is oversaturated with inputs, right? And I won't say stimuli, right? It's receiving signals from our eyes, from our nose, from our mouth, from our our fingers, all our ears, all at the same time, right? And our brain selectively filters which parts we cognitively think about or not. So there's like you know this there's already processing happening before we even consciously think 
and start processing on like a, a higher level. Um, and at the same time, there's instances where our brain is like making up inputs, right? And like, I don't know right. if this is, I don't know if this is an underdetermined situation, but definitely, um, you know, you think of like a memory you have, and all of a sudden, bam! There's the 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 sensation of taste from, or the sensation of smell from that memory. It's not around, but your brain is still processing it and firing like it very much is. Every once in a while, yeah. I'm like, I got a craving for pizza. I wonder where that came from. There's no pizza around <laughs> here. <laughs> yeah, phantom stimuli is a great example of, of or a great thing to think about when trying to understand the normativity involved with perception. Think about watching a horror movie, and now all of a sudden you hear sounds everywhere. And there may be some sounds that are being interpreted as the sounds that are scaring you, but also you could have your, your phantom. Uh, what was that? You know, Did I just hear something that, that didn't happen? Right. And uh, I'll go even uh, deeper than that is um, you could probably argue that the reasons that we taste the things we do, they're built in from a, some prior level of our foundation, right? The way we mm. taste things, sweet, bitter, right? We taste bitter to prevent ourselves from eating something that's highly poisonous to us. We taste sweet mm -hmm. and salty to favor things that are better for our health. Obviously that's like arguable nowadays because everything <laughs> that's sweet and salty is heightened, but that was like our, our purpose, right? Our strive for our food. It's like, Oh, this thing is salty. It's, you know, our, we didn't need to think this is healthy for us. Our brain did that for us. Like it automatically thought of it, but there's processing happening there. So it's hard to say yeah. like what's automatic and what's not. Right. No, that's important. And that's what, when we say the word processing, I kind of think that that applies both to to cognitive and non-cognitive processing. There's That's the input-output kind of picture. And some input-output functions are, in my mind, thinking, and some are not. Um, so maybe we should just qualify that with something like mental processing or cognitive processing just to differentiate the kinds of processing that we are focusing on in this season. You, you use the word qualify. Did I hear you say a spoiler? <laughs> uh, sorry, no spoiler, uh, no spoiler warning. <laughs> so uh, there's a lot more to be said about perception. I'm sure we'll come back to some of these topics, but uh, this introduction of error and phantom, uh, phantom perceptions and how we make decisions about our environment, I think is going to lead us into our next topic, which is having a perspective. The fact that um, being perception, being situated such that your perceptual systems are oriented opens up the possibility of, not the possibility, the necessity of perspective and how does that play into judgment and decision making. And maybe we'll finally find out if the referees are making good or bad calls. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. All right. Well, thanks uh, for joining us this time and we'll see you next time on Any Honey in the New. Any Honey in the New.